and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. After a couple weeks of talking about new movies, after quite a few of talking about old, we're back to revisiting old movies, and I'm becoming a Marvel Cinematic Universe completist today as we talk about The Incredible Hulk, but then also The Iron Giant. So it's just a giant-themed podcast, and I'm happy to be joined by my friend, Marvel correspondent, Maya. Maya, thanks for being here. What's up, Josh? Not much. I appreciate you doing this with me. We're going to talk about the Hulk first, which I know you didn't really want to watch, but you did it because you're a good team player. And I had to have the Marvel correspondent <laughs> do it if I was going to talk about it. So I kind of peer pressured you into it. So for those that don't know, The Incredible Hulk is it's the second entry into the MCU, right? It was right after it is. Man, it was, right? came out in 2008, the same year that Iron Man came out. Yeah, it was uh, written by Zach Penn, but also uh, uh, supposedly rewritten by Edward Norton and directed by a guy named Louis Leterrier. Uh, it stars Ed Norton as the Bruce Banner, the title character, the Incredible Hulk, in the only appearance you would make in the MCU, as eventually that role would come to be played by Mark Ruffalo. It also Thanks stars Liv, Tyre, Liv <laughs> Tyler, Tim Roth, in like a bonkers performance. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson, Ty Burrell, who before anyone even knew who he was for Modern Family, and William Hurt as the uh, future Secretary of State of the MCU, Thaddeus Ross. This isn't exactly an origin story, Maya, which I thought was kind of interesting as I uh, went into it. It kind of is, but it kind of yada yada is the origin story in like a little montage at the beginning, which is one of the few choices I'd say that is actually probably smart that the movie makes. And we kind of pick up when Bruce is hiding out in Rio de Janeiro, but is still he's still he's still being hunted by uh, Ross, who wants to kind of get back at him for kind of blowing up his lab and uh, hurting him and hurting his daughter, whose name is who's Liv Tyler plays named Betty. We should have mentioned that. Who's also kind of a former, uh, uh, significant other to Bruce. And I don't know, it's, it's largely just an on their own movie. And, uh, Bruce has to try and kind of outrun them and try and fit, he's trying to reverse everything that made him what he's become. And at the same time as he is being hunted throughout my, I guess where I want to start is asking you someone who, cause my first thought when you said, Oh, this is awful is, I, I guess I, I, I was personally maybe expecting a different kind of awful, and I don't think it's a good movie, but I think I probably have a different take on it than you do because you were texting me as you were watching it, just talking about how it almost seemed like you were almost enjoying it in like a way that you can enjoy certain bad movies because they are bad in a certain way. And there are certain, sometimes I think it's better to be for a movie to be bad in that way than to just be like, bleh. And I want to ask you, because it seemed like it was probably the first time you had revisited it in a while, did you actually have fun watching this movie? I'm going to say I, I I had a lot of painful laughter while watching this movie. <laughs> it was the first time I'd seen it in 12 years. I saw it in theaters when it came out in 2008. Oh, wow. And I you did not rewatch it, being, it at all, huh? Never did like, I, never I, did like a full-out Marvel rewatch at any point in the last 12 years? I skipped this one <laughs> on purpose. The, the only thing that really is tying it together is the fact that um, – that you have William Hurt playing Ross in Captain America Civil War and kind of bringing that together. That's the only time that you actually see the Hulk movie really brought into the Marvel Universe. So when I do a marathon, I kind of don't consider it there. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, uh, given the world we live in today where there are some people that have done pretty atrocious things and positions of power in our country i guess i shouldn't be shocked by anything but that's got to be like one of the most impressive come-ups that like any movie character has ever had this william hurts uh, thaddeus ross becomes the secretary of state and i think it's 
Is it Age of Ultron or Civil War? I'm not sure which one. All of a Civil sudden, War. He, all of a sudden, he pops back up, and he's in the cabinet after he, like, presides over just, like, demolishing a college campus in this movie. Like, I don't, I just don't understand how that happens. But good for him, I guess. He has the right hustle that I should aspire to. That's to, why to they fail call upward him in life. Thunderbolt Ross. They call him Thunderbolt Ross, and that's exactly why. Because he is, like, lightning. He's there, he's gone, and then he comes back again later. Yeah, I plan to go on a rant about that later in the podcast. But, like, I just... <laughs> I, I, I just I, it, it was just such a sticking point for me watching this movie that I couldn't even help but uh, talk about it right now. But I don't know. So you, 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 you kind of found it as painful after, I guess is the way you just coined it. And I don't know. I, I don't even think I got that level of enjoyment out of it. You know, I, I watched it and I... I, it just wasn't anything special. I don't... I mean, I guess there's something to the idea of having a movie about a guy on the run. But I mean, I also... One of my pet peeves in superhero movies, and maybe it was more of a thing and I don't know. I guess it's something that comes up a lot where someone just kind of like, you know, bemoan... A lot of the conceit of a lot of superhero movies we've seen over the last fifteen years is where people are just kind of like bemoaning the fact that they have these powers and they're trying to get rid of them, or they are like it, it, they're a lot of the runtimes of some of these movies. It's them not embracing kind of the actual of being a superhero, which is kind of what we go to these movies for. Correct, and, but I mean, you mentioned something about the truncated beginning where they sort of mm-hmm. speed up the process. The reason why they did that is because five years before, in 2003, when Marvel did not own the rights uh, to the cinematic version of The Hulk, there was a version having um, another actor. Eric Bana, directed Bruce by Bana. Eric Bana. Yes. Yes, exactly. So that movie was supposed to sort of um, really play into the theme of um, seeing a couple superhero movies throughout the early 2000s. So that movie came out. It was a total catastrophe. It was it was absolutely panned by critics. So when they brought it back, they... Which is wild. That's like a two-time Oscar, Best Director winning Oscar. Like Exactly. Oscar you, you would think it would be good, but at the time, being nerdy and being geeky wasn't exactly in. You know, you had the culture of the boy band, and you had basically a popular culture. So because of that, they weren't going to go all out on the comic book um, sort of theme. I guess the closest thing that really came to it at that time was the Spider-Man franchise. Even you know the early Batman movies, they do have a sense of appealability to a bunch of different audiences, not just a nerdy audience. But the reason why I don't consider this movie necessarily up to par with the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is because this lacked a really strong script. It lacked a, you know, kind of a cohesiveness. And the reason why we found it so funny and why we were laughing so hard is because the movie could have been condensed into 30 minutes. I mean, there's a, so much where nothing in particular is happening. It could have been solved in a sentence or two, but yet they felt dragging it out because it just didn't have a strong plot line. And I think that's where this sort of fails in comparison to the other ones. And it's not necessarily just my opinion. It's I, I believe it might be the second worst rated. I think the worst rated Marvel movie um, on Rotten Tomatoes is Thor Dark World. Yes. So, um, which deserves it. But this movie did not gross nearly as much as the rest of the franchise. I, I mean, it only grossed about um, a hundred thousand over um, over what it cost, which you is know, hundred mil, hundred million, hundred million, hundred million. Thank you, I appreciate it. But yeah, still not um, great for Marvel standards. Yeah, exactly, not up to Marvel standards. And and because of that, you know, adding up. Whenever I I talk about this movie and I talk to other Marvel fans about it, it's like you have a, a shiver down your spine. It just it. I think it might have been better off, and I'm so sorry to say this, he's a great actor, but it might have been better off if Edward Norton were not the Hulk. 
Well, yeah, and I I wasn't sure why I'd bring that up, but I guess that's a really important thing to talk about when discussing this movie. And uh, it, it wasn't his acting chops that got him recast, though. He's notoriously like a very difficult guy to work with. Re- apparently, I, I, just, just, I did for some like Wikipediaing I did, but it sounds pretty much like what I know from of him is that he like argued with them over the final cut of the film, was just very difficult, had rewritten it, and all this stuff. And I think they were just ready to move on from someone else. You might know more of the backstory to that, but I'm guessing, do you have strong feelings as to what makes Mark Ruffalo a better Bruce Banner or Incredible Yes, I do. I absolutely do. And they actually, there was a couple of uses of the music to sort of describe Edward Norton's characterization of Bruce Banner is very mild, very sheepish, and not in the kind of way where you think he's shy because he's, or shyer, you know, not a strong male lead. Um, it's not because he's a scientist, because they really were able to perfect that um, when they introduced Mark Ruffalo as the Hulk. But the reason why is because they, they didn't necessarily view this franchise to have the, the future that it did. So they weren't really counting on the strong characterization. They thought this movie was going to be a one-off and that's it. If you want to include Edward Norton in the Avengers, picture it in your head. It absolutely completely just shatters the movie's illusion um, being so believable. So I personally believe that I, I, what they were looking at was a long-term plan, and that's probably the reason why he got cut. It just he did not fit in with the rest of the characterization of the Avengers. I got you. And it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if I found it like like offensively bad. And this movie just feels so different from so much of the rest of the MCU that maybe I didn't really have a hard time like just accepting him as a Hulk for the purposes of this movie as opposed to Mark Ruffalo. But I don't know. That was kind of like just like the least of my critiques of the movie. And I but I, 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 can, I can totally get why it just like works better and I, I i don't know if that you're you're too familiar with a lot of the earlier television shows or any of the comics or anything like that but i do yeah, I they did, were great. so you're saying that that shyness really is like an important trait that like for someone to perfect when they're playing bruce banner i i think that not necessarily the shyness i think mark ruffalo actually has more of a he can hold his own in a in a way his wittiness is what gets him far and edward norton doesn't necessarily have that in his vocabulary in this movie. I think that has to do with a weak script. The yeah, weak I was going to say, it's more in the writing than him, I'd say. Yeah, he exactly. He can play witty. But, right, he, he can play witty. I mean, he, he's done comedy before, and he's great at it. But and that's what he did in not, Birdman, where he actually made fun of himself for a lot exactly of That's exactly what that, I was yeah. going to bring up. But that was exactly the moment I was going to bring up. Clearly, he knows how to sort of make fun of himself. But I, I'm thinking, potentially, you probably would have included Liv Tyler in further um, iterations of the franchise. Absolutely. William Hurt, obviously, he makes another appearance. But let's be real. This isn't the first time that they um, they recast a major character in the first round of the Marvel franchise. You also have the— um, Terrence Howard to Don Cheadle. Yes. Exactly. And and be, maybe it's because they didn't realize what a success this was going to be, but you can totally see a difference between the early times when they're doing the Marvel movies and then when Disney took it over and really made it go on steroids. Right. No, I, I got you for sure. And, uh, it, it's, it's, a, but I, again, I think, I, I do think you're right though on it. Maybe just being more on the script you already mentioned uh william hurt but also uh it does it just feels like a massive waste of talent overall even when you get past william hurt i mean william hurt's like a great actor i mean he kind of peaked in the 80s but he won he was like nominated for best actor like leading actor like three years in a row at the oscars and won one of them and but like tim roth's also like really good actor and it's like potentially interesting to see that guy 15 years after like 
Pulp Fiction and right. 16 years, 17 years after Reservoir Dogs when he was like a younger guy that like in theory would have made more sense in an action movie. Like getting a role like this is, I don't know, it's, it's, like an, it's an inspired choice as opposed to like casting like some like 28 year old super jacked guy. And I guess that's the idea is this guy wants a new body or whatever, but it, there's yeah. like no, there's like no context for the villain he becomes. He's like an actor that I think could be totally capable of playing a, like a villain in a Marvel movie and giving a much more interesting performance. And maybe a lot of the other people that sometimes get into these kind of movies. And it just feels like completely wasted by this story where you didn't really, really, if you get Tim Roth, you should write him a good character instead of some guy that just decides he wants to become a murderer at the drop of a hat, you know? Right. But the only reason why they ended up having him as a character like that is they wanted to prove that the Hulk has the ability to beat a Hulk like, you know, character. And they didn't really lend itself to um, doing too much to, I guess, like plan for the future in a sense. The only thing that they did to connect it was at the end where you see um, Robert Downey Jr. um, talking to William Hurt. But if, if you want to plan a franchise, you have to make sure that your characters stand up. If we consider this an origin story, which technically speaking it is, then you see that the Hulk has, you know, he's, he's extremely powerful. He can hold his own and he can not only defeat a character that has more strength than he does, but at the same time, he can potentially pay a greater part in helping save the world eventually. And they did the same thing with Iron Man. They did the same thing with Captain America. I mean, they slowly started increasing the kind of, um, it's kind of like when you're playing like an older video game and the boss levels end up increasing over time, like with Pokemon, that the gym, um, the, the, the gym <laughs> leaders. Yeah. So these are, these are basically showing, okay, this is a p- potential power that they have. But as the timeline increases in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you see really what they can accomplish, eventually defeating Thanos. Yeah, we mentioned possibly, like, if the, a, ver- a version of this is done well, has, like, Liv Tyler in, like, later movies. Is, I mean, is there a version of this movie where you see that character of Betty, like, working more than she does? Because I don't know if she really gets a whole lot to do besides just, like, kind of be supportive to Bruce. I actually was very upset. As much as I love Liv Tyler, they really undercut Betty's character. For someone who graduated from Harvard and is supposed to be a scientist, they play her they, they literally only cast her because Liv Tyler knows how to look surprised very well on screen. <laughs> I, I'd agree. And, and, so, and because of that, you have a situation where you have this great potential, strong female lead, Harvard graduate, scientist, and all she does is, oh, my God, I can't believe it. You're alive and crying, just sobbing. And, and, it, and it, it upsets me. So I go back to the Zach Penn writing of this. It just, and I know he did so much, um, you know, for, for the, um, Marvel movies, but in particular, he, he just, he did not nail it with it. He, he did a great job in the Avengers and maybe he sort of realized that, um, he needs to tighten up his script writing, but what he did in this movie was just, it could have been shortened by 30 minutes. There was just nothing happening. I mean, if I mean, bringing a great point about how terrible the script is, you're, you're putting um, Tim Roth's character looking for the Hulk, having no idea that Edward Norton is the Hulk. And then he's surprised. He goes, oh, there's this thing. And you know what? I'm pretty sure Banner is controlling it. It's like, you idiot. It is Banner. Yeah, it's like, what what wouldn't they, they, they brief them on that when they went in? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. You fly this guy all the way to Rio de Janeiro, and then you don't tell him, oh, by the way, you're going to be looking for a guy who might be Hulk-sized. 
I also would have liked to have seen, I mean, this is like really small potatoes, but I would have liked to have seen how Bruce got back to America. Like he was just like straight up on the run with no right? documents. He was just in America. I mean, I know you can't get caught up on like those little things in movies like this, but like he sprouted into the Hulk. So he's kind of lost his pants and any documentation and everything like that. And he's just, he's straight up on the run getting, getting rides some random guys in Guatemala or wherever he is. And Josh, I'm literally showing you right now in the camera on my notes where I said, how did he get to America? I, I, that was my second bullet point also. It's like, I mean, I get it. Like that's not, you don't really want to have a scene at customs or going to see a passport forger. It might feel odd and perfunctory in one of these movies, but I I was like, yeah, but like, he's like literally on the run, on the run. If we're going to have an on on the run movie, like I kind of want to see the mechanics of how he is successful on the run. I don't know. Yeah. I I would have liked to see that also. Um, but there there are a couple of other things that as, and I'm going to do a positive for it. The movie did a couple of jokes very well. Number one, the purple pants joke when he's holding mm. up the purple pants. Very nice callback to the original comics. I, I appreciated that. And number two, having Lou Ferrigno in the movie. It was totally unnecessary, but I'm so happy he was there. Yeah, no, I, I, I liked it. Like, you thought that guy was just going to be big and tough, and then he just ends up being friend and he can be bought off with a pizza. Apparently, so he does, Lou Ferrigno still did the voice too, right? Uh, he did still do the voice. Yeah, he actually did it also for the 2003 movie. And um, the, the connection is that he was the voice of the Hulk also in the um, the Hulk um, TV show. So it, it's really nice. And he played the Hulk as well right. in a live action version. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, Ty Burrell, he, I, don't, I forgot. He's play, his name is Leonard. He plays Betty's boyfriend. Is he the most understanding boyfriend in movie history? He's the most, he is the guy who is watching his wife cheat on him and saying, you go, honey, you go. And maybe I'd be mad, but he's such a nice guy, you know, got to hand it to him. He's such a sweet guy. And maybe that's why they ended up casting him in uh, the father figure in Modern Family afterwards. I don't know. I was just like, I was expecting something a lot different. I actually really, one thing I did like was the Tim Blake Nelson character, uh, who's Mr. Mr. Blue who's communicating with him. You don't really know who this guy is that Bruce is communicating with the whole movie. And I, I kind of liked how they kind of, the character takes a surprising turn, but doesn't feel unearned or, uh, or, or too out there where you think he's just going to be like the good guy the whole time. And he's going to be there for Bruce. And he's like, Nope, I'm here for science. And I'm, I'll, I'll help t- turn Tim Blake Nelson into another Hulk just cause I love science so much and for good or for better or worse. And I kind of appreciated that where you thought he was just going to be a good guy the whole time. I, you know, also just to make a quick question for our dog's joke. So if Tim Blake Nelson is Mr. Blue and Edward Norton is Mr. Green, can Tim Ross still be Mr. Pink? sure why not (laughs) (laughs) so um i mean his character i in my opinion was probably one of the sweeter ones to see in the the franchise obviously he does end up um you know screwing up because he's he's a scientist so he really is so interested in in bruce's chemical makeup that he increases the supply and it's, it's just on understanding where scientists are coming from right now, I'm sure if you have like a specimen like that, you want to investigate it as much as possible and you want to try and see how it can help modern medicine. But I feel like that could have been the entire plot of the movie without necessarily like, and creating basically. So he, he ends up talking to Stearns and he ends up creating this Hulk army, something like that. That would have probably been, in my opinion, a better plot line than what we currently had, because I feel like the Stearns character deserved more development. He he had so much to give, and we basically see him on screen for, what, maybe 20, 30 minutes? Sure, yeah. 
No, no, and yeah, and I and I, and I like the performance. So I, I I do like the idea of just cutting out like most of that first half of the movie in favor of that. Yeah. Even if I, to be fair, I I guess I kind of did appreciate. I did appreciate seeing like I did. They actually shoot. I have the Wikipedia. Did they actually shoot in Rio? Um, they did. They did. That felt different for a Marvel movie. I'll give it that. You know, I mean, uh, how, how does that feel different from a Marvel movie? And when you Iron Man, it literally starts in the middle of the Middle East. That's true. I mean, well, I will mean, not that they, not that they would film in another country, but like, I mean, and Iron Man feels different too. I mean, it, it seems like they almost did more of that kind of thing besides Black Panther going to Korea. But like, I mean, that was awesome. Yeah, that, that was really well done. But like, I, I guess they pick and choose when they do that. But I think they're I, I mean, maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm just not thinking maybe I didn't think that point through enough. But it, it did feel like something different from what I'd seen in other Marvel movies. I'll, I'll, I'll at least give it that even if it wasn't like whole oh, unique to go to an international location. Right. I was like, I, I, I don't know if I've really ever seen any anything that felt exactly like them going through a South American country. Like it just, it seems like something different visually that I thought it pulled off, uh, fairly well. So, uh, yeah. I, 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 I guess I'll give it that if, uh, nothing else. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Is there anything else? Any, I, I have a couple other odds and ends. Are there any other points you wanted to touch on, on this one though? Um, I have a closing point. That's pretty much it. Yes. So my closing point with it is, as much as a Hulk movie felt like it could have been necessary for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I prefer to think of the option of it not actually being included and just thinking in your head that it's clearly obvious that the reason why Hulk is the way he is is because of some you know, situation that happened that caused him to become that. And the reason why I feel that is because you don't see Spider-Man's origin story in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that we know today because you already know it in your head. So I think in my head, I would rather a movie with another giant-sized um, character in the Marvel Universe. Maybe a Groot origin story would have been better instead. Well, I, I'm glad you actually made that point because I, I still have a couple other points I wanted to make. But you, you reminded me, I forgot. Like, there is actually some – you might understand this better than I do. There's some weird right stuff with Hulk specifically still. Uh, aside from like 2003 when they didn't quite have it, like it wasn't all under Marvel control. I think there's still a reason there aren't more standalones. Uh, yeah. Universal has the distribution. Right, rights, I, that, I that was what I thought initially when I saw Universal just pop up like that. So do they have yeah. like distribution rights to Hulk movies, whereas Marvel still has the right to use the Hulk? Is that how it works? Um, no, the Marvel has the character rights, but the Universal has a distribution right. So maybe ah. it could have affected that. So, but I personally think that uh, the reason why they didn't do it is because they they had already started phase one. Why do they need to go back? Why do they need to redo it? In, in my opinion, versus redoing it, I would just eliminate it altogether because it just doesn't flow with the rest of the franchise. Well, these things it just, can. It, Right, but these yep. things can be worked around too. Like as we've seen with Spider Man, like they can strike all kinds of weird deals and stuff like that. Exactly. Do you do you, do you have any desire at some point, knowing what you know now about this character and how it's been, where it's been taken no. post Edward Norton? You don't have any desire for like a Mark Ruffalo led MCU movie. I, I would like a Mark Ruffalo MCU movie. It can't be an origin story. Oh yeah, definitely. I know. I, you're, I'm totally with you on that. But you, you, you still think there's like enough potential with the character, as many times as we've seen him in other people's movies or in Avengers movies. Like you think that you, you still like that character enough? Do you think it's dynamic enough that even though the Hulk's not all that talkative when he's actually doing Hulk things, you think there's enough there there to like actually do a Hulk movie at some point if that were to ever become a thing that the rights would allow. Well, I, th I think that most of the movies that we see are stem based off of a really strong comic book plot line. If, if there was a 
real something that already exists in canon that they can elaborate more on absolutely i'd like to see it it's it's one of the most beloved comics in um in marvel's comic book history and if there's something that people or fans feel strongly about that they want to see in a, in a film i think it should be made that being said we already have everything mapped up in the movie universe until um the end of phase four so I don't really think that we're going to be seeing him other than yeah. as a, a buddy character for some yeah. other character. He'll be yeah. yeah, he'll be sixty years old at that point. And but I, but I, I I take back what I said before because like I mean about him not being that talkative when he's Hulk because in in Endgame like uh, Banner Hulk was like hilarious and that was actually yes. great and some version of that I'm, it could definitely sustain its own movie. Uh, another odds and end MCU question for you: Did the uh, Martin Starr character that attended Culver University did he become a school teacher in New York? That's what I was thinking. I actually wrote it down as well. I need to see if there's some connection. I forgot to look into it. <laughs> uh, in my head canon, let's say yes, because I got very excited to see him there. It's just kind of funny. I mean, obviously, like, tons of people have been in all these movies, and it made sense for them to give him an actual speaking role, a real speaking role in the Spider-Man movies because he's a more well-known guy now. But he got his start, I guess, in some of the Judd Apatow stuff. I can't remember if it was Freaks and Greeks or Undeclared, but I, I, don't, I don't know if I've seen him in anything else that was quite that early, like 2008 because he's in Adventureland in 2009, I know. So that was funny to see him pop up. Uh, well, I'm actually reading the Wikipedia right now. Apparently, the character was retroactively revealed to be uh, Roger Harrington, which is um, Spider-Man's teacher in Homecoming and Far From Home. So they confirmed that. So <laughs> headcanon's a real thing. He is he is um, in the movies since 2008. Of course. Glad, glad we confirmed that. Uh, also, I just wanted to point out that uh, Thaddeus Ross, uh, also a racist while we're at it, because he, he says, tell them to bring everything they've got to, and head for Harlem, because he just wants to destroy Harlem where all the black people live. So he's, Thaddeus Ross is canceled. Yeah, he's, he's just really bad. Uh, I, and just didn't really seem to really care about his daughter at all and wanted to like just just fuck shit up and he was just bad. Uh, but yeah, so that's that. I don't it. think I've ever heard you curse like that before. Oh, well, yeah, that, that tells me you don't listen to the podcast enough because, I mean, we have the explicit tag on iTunes for a reason. Ah, um, oh, there it is. Okay. Yeah, so you, you, you can you can say anything you want. The kids have been warned. Uh, the kids so, have been warned. So yeah, Incredible Hulk, I don't really know if there's any reason to, like, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I the purpose of me doing these podcasts is because I'm trying to find interesting reasons to go back and watch something. Whether it be something that a I've seen a lot of this director's things, but I haven't seen that one thing he did, or uh, introducing myself to a genre I've never seen, or like completing a collection of sorts. And that's what this was for me. And if you feel the need to be an MCU completist because there's nothing else going on right now, there's no movies to go see in the theaters till at least the end of July. I, sure, watch it, but I can't really give you a harder recommendation than that. And I have the feeling Maya would agree. I absolutely agree, which is why I'm actually excited to, in a sense, uh, transition it over to the other movie with the the giant guy played by Vin Diesel that happens to be somehow connected in some way, shape, or form. Oh, yes. Thank you for doing my job for me. That makes it easier. <laughs> we'll, we'll now talk about The Iron Giant, which is the 1999 animated movie uh, directed by Brad Bird, also uh, written by Brad Bird and Tim McKinley's. Uh, it was based on a, a book called The Iron Man, actually, which is 
kind of funny that it was based on something called Iron Man as opposed to Iron Giant, uh, given that we just talked about MCU stuff. But Vin Diesel plays a giant hunk of metal that just kind of uh, gets dropped from space in the middle of the Cold War into Maine. And different people see it around this main town and are kind of concerned that this is some kind of Russian thing that's going on. Uh, FBI kind of gets involved a little bit. And or sorry, a U.S. government agent. I don't know if it's FBI. I kept calling him an FBI agent as I talked about the movie. But uh, but before anyone can really kind of get a hold of this Iron Giant, uh, a boy named Hogarth comes across it. His he lives there with his mom, voiced by Jennifer Aniston, and he becomes friends with this big hunk of metal as people are trying to hunt him down. And he also befriends the local junkyard owner voiced by Harry Connick Jr. because the giant likes to eat metal and that's how he feeds. Mile. You were, I, we were talking about HBO Max and just movies that we could talk about there, and this was one you zeroed in on pretty fast. Uh, is this something you saw when you were a little kid that you've always been fond of? Uh, where does your affection for this movie come from? So I definitely, I, I remember seeing this movie in theaters when I was a kid. It came out in I, I don't think I did, actually. I, I actually watched it for the first time like two years ago. Really? No, I, I had this movie on video cassette. I watched it constantly. It came out when I was uh, about six years old. And um, I, I remember it so vividly. I remember it like the Iron Giant being somebody who felt like such a warm character. And I, that always stuck with me. Um, I loved finding out tidbits years later about how it was voiced um you know, in part by Jennifer Aniston, Harry Connick Jr. And, you know, people who I really loved and appreciated. And as I got older and watched shows like Frasier, seeing that John Mahoney was in it, I, I think that this is a kind of movie where you can go back on as an adult, learn something, and then know that you're going to show your kid this movie one day because you felt something, it, you grew in part because of it. It, it helps you sort of learn, um, you know, the meaning of, of friendship and supporting family. And, and I, I just, I was so happy to see that it was there because I had just been really looking forward to seeing this again at some point in my adult life. Yeah, so I, I, I made sure, I, I think I probably paid to watch it because it wasn't as easily available as it is now with HBO Max, which is great. Everyone should get HBO Max. It's an incredible selection. But I, I watched it in advance of Incredibles 2 a couple years ago because I was like, oh, that's a Brad Bird thing. I'm about to talk about a Brad Bird animated movie. I should probably see The Iron Giant uh, before I do a podcast on it and pretend I know everything about Brad Bird. And so I, I enjoyed it then, but I was still uh, interested to revisit it now that I'd like I'd seen Bumblebee since then. I'd seen Incredibles 2 now, and I figured, oh, it'll be interesting to like kind of go watch again a couple years later. And I mean, it, it was kind of just like a nice palate cleanser too after Incredible Hulk, though I don't know if I, 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 I love the movie as much as you did. But one thing I think I, is pretty cool, like you said, there's a lot of stuff in there to, that you can teach young kids about. But at the same time, I think the thing that I was struck more about on this viewing was that it's like an actual like legitimately good cold war movie, which is kind of bizarre mm-hmm. to say about a kid's movie. Uh, and I, cause my, my biggest thing, and it's still my biggest like critique of the movie is that Mansley, who's the government agent that's hunting the iron giant, he turns into a bit of a cartoon villain, but it didn't bother me that much actually until the end this time. I think it bothered right. me more throughout the last time. And this time I was like, okay, I feel like this movie's doing a better job than I realized it did last time of actually like 
giving this like because it's set in the 50s and it does a better job of like actually kind of setting the scene and like making you feel the stakes of the cold war and why characters would feel this way and be afraid of the unknown and i kind of appreciated that throughout that's why i think i might have enjoyed the movie even a little more than i did the last time is that i felt like i understood the context more for this government agent just acting like a creepy lunatic the whole time uh until the end when he kind of becomes a murderer but up until then i kind of i dug it more I think I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I, I think that this is the kind of movie that every single time you watch it, you concentrate on something else because it transfixes you. I mean, at, at that time when it came out, the um, the special effects and the CGI were so good. And and I remember watching it, thinking how artistic it was. Like watching the first time I ever watched Mulan, I felt that way. Hmm. And it just it's it really sticks years later how beautiful that um, that artwork is. And I, and I think that's why maybe you watching a second time, you're noticing that because I really didn't notice too much, um, watching it the first time around being six, but every time I watch it, I feel like I, I gained something. I learned something. And maybe it's because this movie sort of ages very well and it ages with you very well as well. Yeah. I, I, I that was another thing. I, I went back and I read a re- the review I wrote on Letterboxd of it a couple of years ago. And I remember, like, for some reason, I remember being critical of the of the animation. And I mean, yeah, when you when when you're writing something like that in 2018, where there's obviously been a lot of strides made in technology since then, like, of course, it's going to seem crude. But like this time, I I don't know, I I, I I was I was more impressed by it, and I think I was especially impressed by the giant. And that's yeah, that, that's a a what's the word? It's not a, it's not a person. It's a it's it's a, it's a thing that doesn't have a lot of moving parts to actually like uh, that you can really be expressive with. You know, that's why yeah. like you know and well. Like when the when, personify as well. Well, yeah, like or kind of like how it's almost the same problem that I think you kind of had with something like where you tr- though where you try and do. Uh, when I did the podcast last year on the Lion King, and we talked about why the new Lion King kind of struggled because, like, yeah, in theory, maybe it sounds cool to have real looking animals, but real looking animals can only be so expressive. That's like a benefit of animation. So, like, you know, a f- you're shaking your head. You, did you kind of agree you didn't like the Lion King that much? Or? I hated it. I okay. think I was, wasn't I the one on the podcast with you about it? No, you ended up not being able to do it because of scheduling conflicts, but we talked about it. That's right. Yeah, uh, we did. But, 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 like, here it's kind of funny where it's like, wow, like, something that's just made of a piece of metal like can be way more expressive than an animal because you're even using animation that was maybe uh fairly new in 1999 but like maybe crude by today's standards still like mm-hmm. you, you the, the robot in the iron giant is like far more expressive and you can empathize with them far more than you can with these characters that were in the quote-unquote live action whatever you want to it's not live action because it's, it's all cgi I don't, however you want to classify CGI, yeah. however you want to classify the new lion king like it's just funny like the robot was like really expressive and i like found myself like appreciating that even more than i did mm-hmm. the last time because I've seen like other weird attempts at animation in the last few years. It's like, wow, they did this better in 1999. Well, I mean, and and not to connect it to Marvel, but the interesting thing that this movie does that alludes to Iron Man is that basically it, it, it summarizes the plot to give the theme that even something that's made of iron can still have, you know, warmth and can have depth and can have a heart. And obviously, you know, to, to also make the connection that Vin Diesel was the voice of the Iron Giant, I think that's why he might be one of the most overpaid, um, you know, Marvel actors. Hey, whoa now, whoa now! How dare you say that about Groot? Well, no, I let me let me explain. highly compensated. Highly compensated. I think that he is perfect as Groot because the kids right now who watch the Iron Giant and love the Iron Giant are now watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe as adults. 
And that, that voice and that, um, that fear and, and love and, and softness at the same time that he has for the Iron Giant, he also uses for Groot. And I think that it, it, the personification is not only in the voice, but also in the animation. I, I think that the voice does a good job at bringing that out and sort of bringing you in. And I think that every single character um, over here, you, granted, the star potential in this movie is incredible, but you don't necessarily realize that you're watching an animation in a sense because everything feels so realistic and, and feels you connect with it very well. And like I said, maybe you didn't have that same um, that same connection to it, and maybe the reason why I have that connection to it is because it's like voices from my childhood. But I, I really, I always feel so drawn in watching this movie. So when I ended up finding out that they were going to cast Vin Diesel as Groot, to me, it just made perfect sense because Groot is the big, lovable um, uh, tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, fair, fair enough. And I think there is something to that where, like, if I had a little bit more nostalgia working in my favor as I was watching this, maybe it would resonate with me even more. But I can't help that the first time I watched it was, like, uh, when I'd already been doing, like, the movie podcasting thing for three years, and I just thought about movies more critically than I would have if I'd seen it when I was eight. Mm -hmm. And I, so I, I guess I just kind of went into it already having some of my preconceived criticisms in it from like my last viewing and that probably affected me some, but I was, I was glad I was able to get more out of it. But the thing is like, I, I still can't help you just be like a little critical some about the whole villain thing, because maybe if I didn't know anything else about Brad Bird, it wouldn't bother me as much, but like he wrote maybe the best villain ever in an animated movie in syndrome in the first Incredibles movie. Oh, absolutely. So, so I, it's like, I kind of, I do hold him to a pretty high standard, I would say, because I know he's like capable of like creating a villain. That's like that good and complex and says a lot about the world at the same time. And maybe Mansley was saying something about the world in 1950 with a lot of the cold war paranoia. And, agree. but I'm not, I'm not a person of that time. Yeah. And then he just straight up wants to murder Hogarth at the end. And it just like loses me. But again, I feel like I'm talking myself into it a little more as to like what he was trying to do with that character. It just felt a little more one dimensional than like what syndrome does in the Incredibles, you know? Right. But let's be realistic at the time, somebody who was in his position, who they had the, um, you know, the, the scares in America that they did mm -hmm. with the cold war. I, I, it makes total sense why he did act in that way. I, I don't find it actually to be anything less than timely in, in terms true, of it, it's true. taking place in 1957. That being said, I can understand, you know, coming from 2020, you're seeing it, you're like, okay, it's a little bit, you know, over-characterized, but... Uh, I guess it's just when he's like, let's just murder Hogarth, when the, when, when, the, when the robot's not actually attacking people, and he's like, yep, I want to kill the kid. I don't care if the he robot... He reminds me so much of the villain from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, actually. For some reason, I always <laughs> found them very similar. Interesting. Um, I, I don't know why. Just like, it's, it's um, like a, a depth of evil when you happen to be in, you know, a, a government position. The two characters just align with each other. Anyway, um, I but... I, I can understand what you're saying that considering how this is Brad Bird's, I think first big film. And I don't think he was working for Pixar yet. Um, or this might've been an offshoot. I, I remember reading something about the history a while ago about it, but comparing this to the Incredibles, which only came out a couple of years later, the, the villain in the Incredibles is a lot, has a lot more depth and have, has a lot um, more to him. 
No, for sure, for sure. What did you think about uh, Harry Connick Jr.? Like, it's kind of funny. Like, I, I remember thinking it was odd the first time I saw this movie. I was like, wow, that's interesting that, like, he's a voice here. He's kind of a singer first and he's done a little acting, but, like, for it to, I, it's interesting. I completely disagree. I think that he is an actor who happens to be a beautiful singer. I, I mean, he hasn't acted he, that much, though, has he? He's done good amount of stuff i'm gonna i'll I'll bring up his page let's debate this out because i think he's fantastic he was in independence day he (laughs) let me pull it up going to filmography okay he's maybe in more than i realized i guess okay yeah yes i love you he played the the other guy um he's Great. I've only I seen it. I've only, I guess I've only seen a handful of these, but maybe I'm shortchanging him a little bit because I knew he had. I, knew, I, I somehow knew he had that stint on Will and Grace. I'm now looking at the TV part. Of yeah, this he had 24 uh, episodes of Will and Grace. <laughs> but I guess like yeah, I guess I don't know. I, I I feel like he is still more respected for his singing though. But it seems like you like his acting though. And he, I do. It, it's, he it's, had it's a, a TV funny character. Show. It's great. I, I I don't know why I love him so much, but I, I don't know when he smiles at you, you feel warm inside. But um, he's uh, I don't know. I, I think I think his voice was a take it or leave it. Anybody who could have really played that role. But I mean, yeah, I guess so. But it, it was still like a I don't know. It was still an interesting character. Just like the way the way we're introduced to him and how he he kind of flips. But then he he, he he's smart enough to know kind of figure out that like. The, the giant was just being defensive when he thought he had just kind of turned into a monster. And like, I was, that was like a, a thing I was a choice, a storytelling choice. I was very happy about where it was like, yes. Oh, this guy that was skeptical. Was he all of a sudden going to turn against him? But he's like, I like when characters do smart things. I talk about that a lot. It was cool that he was able to be smart enough to just figure that out. We didn't have to worry about someone else irrationally going after our, our uh, lovable giant. In my opinion, this is where the, the screenplay writing really comes out and, and really does a good job at um, driving the character's motivations. And, I mean, and, and that's why I say that maybe Hyreconic Jr.'s character um, in Dean could have been done by anybody because he, he, had, um, he had depth to him. He very clearly um, was, was open enough in a character to see what was happening with the giant. He... And, and as an adult dealing with a kid, a lot of the times in movies, you sort of see the adult um, not believing the kid at first. Yeah. And uh, when the kid gets in trouble, then the adult comes to the rescue. And you could tell early on that Dean was Hogarth's, um, you know, advocate. And I thought that was really... Right. That was, I like that. Yeah, that's, I don't really see that done a lot in movies. And maybe that's... I, as Watching this as a young kid, I always thought Dean was super cool. Um, because he, he was able to get Hogarth. Hogarth, it's nine, you know, having an active imagination like that and and having those wild thoughts, his mom automatically dismisses him and it really doesn't, it doesn't connect until she sees a hundred foot giant in front of her. Yeah. In general, I like Jennifer Aniston, but if there's one take out or leave it voice performance, it's kind of her because it almost stands out more even than Harry Connick Jr. Like her voice is so distinctive and it's like, oh, that's Jennifer Aniston, but like, it's not really, it's it's kind of her, her, she's kind of there to to voice a character that really doesn't bring a ton to to the table so i mean it was like it's like whatever whereas i thought like there's a lot more going on with the with the harry connick jr's uh with it with his role so i it's one of the few times that jennifer aniston has played a mom on screen too i mean she doesn't really play that role a lot um because she very notably is it has is you know i want to say 50 um and had very high profile marriages but you know was always so significant herself that you don't. You don't really. You, you you watch a movie with her and you um you hear her voice and she's automatically recognizable. But she's recognizable as being the strong strong female character who um saves the day at the end. Did, I mean, she 
Did you watch the morning show? I didn't. I that's on my list. I really want to see that. It's just kind of funny. I was thinking, like, where have I seen her play a mom before? She actually plays a mom and has a couple actual good scenes with the daughter that she has on that show. But, uh, and, and obviously in Friends as well with Emma. But even that, it takes a while for her to, you know, get mom dumb. And, and even so, you can tell that it's there's more of a she's a, a very cool, fashionable, you know, mid 2000s New York mom versus if, if you watch um, a lot of characters with like a strong mother daughter bond that she doesn't really have that in many of her movies. No, fair enough. And like, I don't know if there's, it's again, it's not the important bond in this movie. So, I mean, I don't really care that like her relationship with Hogarth isn't like greatly explained in this. Like you get it. Like she cares about him. It's her son and she wants him to be safe. But like the, the more, the important thing is this movie, like uh, it pulls off the other couple bonds in this movie between Hogarth and the giant and even Hogarth and Harry Connick Jr.'s character. Like the, I I mean, you really enjoy seeing them kind of bond too. And the movie does a really good job and all those scenes are very charming and I appreciated it. Do you have any other, any other thoughts on this movie before we wrap it up? I think that if uh, somebody is in their, you know, late twenties, early thirties, who saw this movie as a kid and hasn't shown it to their kid yet, they absolutely should give it another watch. Yeah. The other thing I'll say is, I mean, this isn't so much about this movie, but like I, I was a big fan of Bumblebee, which came out at the end of 2018. I'm a big fan of Haley Steinfeld, and I thought that was a charming movie. And why, But I, I, watching this now, because when I watched Iron Giant the first time, Bumblebee was still like five months away from coming out. And now I've seen Bumblebee, and I realize just how much of a ripoff of it, Bumblebee, of Iron Giant Bumblebee was. But now at the same time, I'm like, oh, that's how much I love Bumblebee that I still don't really care it's a ripoff. Like, that's still a great movie, too. But uh, everyone should obviously give the Iron Giant a shot if you're just looking for something to watch because it's only like it's less than 90 minutes and it's on HBO it's Max, so, so it's, it's very accessible and I I, I I highly recommend it. And I'm glad we could talk about a good movie and I did and you suggested it as opposed to us only talking about the Incredible Hulk because that would have just been kind of like a sad use of 30 minutes of our life. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Maya, before we sign off, you mentioned your you mentioned your TV list a few minutes ago, and you're notorious for not plugging a lot of personal things on this podcast. But one thing we've started doing a lot more of since you were last here for I think the Rise of Skywalker was people have just been making like recommendations of things they're watching as opposed to just plugging themselves if they want to, which is even more important now because everyone is just at home watching with nothing else to do thanks to quarantining. And I know you've been watching a lot because you've been posting on Facebook and Instagram about things you're enjoying. So, is there anything out there that you've watched really recently that you want to just like? give a plug to and say, Hey, I've also been enjoying this recently, whether it be a movie or a TV show. Oh, that's interesting. Um, huh. How to think about that. Uh, cause I've, I've watched so much since everything has, has, um, you know, started with quarantine. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been, you know, working from home for the last four months at this point, that the amount of things that I've watched has sort of blurred in together. It's, it's <laughs> kind of like the, the, the longest movie I've ever seen in a sense. Um, but I, I guess, one of the things I revisited during quarantine that I loved before it didn't come out, you know, this year, but it came out not that long ago. And I, it can be, it can be something old as shit, anything. Oh, well, I mean, I've been watching all those old movies. Yeah. So if there's there's like an old movie on HBO max, I I was about to recommend an old thing. So it doesn't have to be a new thing. I saw Streetcar Named Desire and I had never seen it before. It's always on my list. And for some reason it was never available to stream when streaming services came out. I promise you, I look for this movie maybe once every other month Hmm. and finally it was on HBO max and I saw it. And boy, did I love that movie. (laughs) So I, 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 that was one of the first things I watched after I got HBO max. And I also, uh, really enjoyed it i I thought i thought there was a version of it i would have liked even more uh because like i kind of liked it so it's obviously like the both of the lead performances are obviously like 
incredible. And I would I wanted it to be more just about like the battle of wits that was going on between the Vivian Lee character and the Marlon Brando character, as opposed to it kind of going down the thing where it turns out she's losing her marbles. Like I, I just didn't need a movie that turned into be something about mental illness all along. I would have rather been about like her calling out this guy that was clearly abusive to her sister and being like way smarter than her sister. I just enjoyed that side of the movie way more, but I enjoyed it so much that I still give it two thumbs up. I just like almost wanted it to focus it on that more than like kind of where it goes at the end. Well, you have to consider it in your head, not as a movie that you're watching, but a depiction of a play. I mean, the, it was True. a very, very successful play on Broadway before, and that's what they brought to life to the point where they almost, in the play, she doesn't see a streetcar named Desire. She's, you, they're in the apartment the entire time. It's focused on that. So the acting builds, and that's what makes the play so strong. It's the writing. And they really did an amazing job of bringing that to life. There's very minimal... Um, um, you know, use of special camera angles, special cuts. It's it's pretty focused on how the room um, in the apartments um, close in when she starts feeling a little bit more paranoid, a little bit, um, you know, I, I guess schizophrenic in a way. Yeah. But that's what is really strong about the movie. So uh, while I do understand your, your point, I always think of it as this is a, a filmed version of the play yeah and you're much more well-versed in theater than i am so it makes sense that you would be able to kind of call me out on what that what 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 that is for what it is for what it is as a depiction of a play uh my recommendation i guess i'll i I guess i was gonna go movie but i'll I'll just i'll just talk tv for a second i don't know if you've watched it yet um i'm thoroughly enjoying the great on hulu uh, I have not seen it yet. I, that's it, on my list. It, I have no time these days, but I do want to It feels see funny that. to say The Great is great, but The Great is great. Uh, has uh, stars Elle Fanning as uh, Catherine, who goes to marry, marry Peter the Great, as uh, the Emperor of Rome, and wants to kind of reform him and uh, turn things around for the better, but he's just basically a total frat bro. At least that's how this show depicts him. And uh, it's, it's written by Tony McNamara and created by Tony McNamara, who, who wrote The Favorite a couple years ago. And I mean, it's kind of the oh, same I thing. I love and the favorite. It's, I mean, it's 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 very much in that vein in a costume drama that's like wicked funny. Uh, and Elle Fanning's incredible. Nicholas Holt is hilarious as as, as Peter. He's just, I mean, he's just so obscene, but at the same time, kind of. Uh, predictably charming at times and just like how just how much of a, a, a doofus he is and how highly he thinks of himself when he's really obviously not as hot shit as he thinks and it's but like it actually it, i would say it's like just as funny as the favorite but almost like somehow because it has so much time to to play out all these storylines over 10 episodes it's it actually probably gets even darker and more serious at times but doesn't doesn't feel like it's like totally like all over the place in a way where it could be when it's something can be that funny, but also that serious at times. So I highly recommend that for anyone that has Hulu. Um, I've watched a lot of other movies lately, but nothing I really feel like going all that in depth on. So that's where well, I'll... you're a good salesman because I think I'm going to put on the great right now. I'm, I'm, I, we're looking for something to watch and you've convinced me. It sounds great. And I, and, ah. and I, and like, <laughs> Honestly, I think you'll know pretty soon that it's I, – I mean I, my gut is probably that it is your kind of thing. But like the first episode, it, like, it packs so much plot into it. It's like, like – I was like finishing episode three. I was like it feels like I've been watching this for like two weeks. Like there's so much going on and I don't know. It's very engrossing. And if, you, if you're looking to start something new, I, uh, I think I, I think it will be up your alley, especially if you like the favorite. I mean it's like the same type of thing, same writer, all that. So uh, – yeah, every, right. everyone watch it. It got renewed for season two, that also, but like watch season one because like what else do you people have to do right now? 
<laughs> but uh, but yeah, uh, as usual, I you can also find me on Twitter, Josh Chernovoy, J O S H J U R N O V O Y, and on Letterbox, it's the same thing. Podcast Twitter is Rewind Movie Pod. Podcast Gmail is the Rewind Movie Pod at gmail.com. So if you have any other recommendations for like new stuff you want us to watch, s- send those my way. I'm still kind of trying to find my way through watching some old stuff because you know, like the theaters are keep getting pushed back for when they're going to reopen so i'm um, just revisiting old stuff we'll talk about palm springs the lonely island movie with andy samberg and christina Milioti in a couple weeks but i'm going to probably talk about something else that's old next week before that comes out so i don't know what yet so everyone stay tuned for that maya thanks again for joining maybe you'll thanks uh, for having me maybe you'll come back later in quarantine to talk about something in the hbo max catalog so i'm uh, i'm absolutely down for it i look forward to doing that so everyone thanks again for listening we'll see you next time